Section 13 of A History of the Four Georges and of William IV, Volume 4, by Justin McCarthy and Justin Huntley McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 73 The Triumph of Reform, Part 1. The Reform Bill was then clearly on its way to success. It had passed its second reading in the House of Commons by a large and what might well be called a triumphant majority. Now, when a great measure reaches that stage in the modern history of our Constitution, we can all venture to forecast with some certainty its ultimate fate. We are speaking, it need hardly be said, of reform measures which are moved by a clear principle and have a strong and resolute band of followers. Such measures may be defeated once and again by the House of Lords, and may be delayed in either or both houses for a considerable time, but it only needs perseverance to carry them in the end. Some of the more enlightened and intelligent conservatives must have begun already to feel that the ultimate triumph of the reform measure was only a question of time. But then those who were opposed to every such measure were determined that at all events the triumph should be put off as long as possible. The House of Lords would no doubt throw out the bill when it came for the first time within the range of their power, but it was resolved, meanwhile, to keep the bill as long as possible in the House of Commons. Therefore, there now set in a parliamentary campaign of a kind which was almost quite new to those days, but has become familiar to our later times, a campaign of obstruction. After the second reading of the new reform bill, there set in that first great systematic performance of obstruction which has been the inspiration, the lesson, and the model to all the obstructives of later years. The rules and the practices of the House of Commons offered in those times, and indeed for long after, the most tempting opportunities to any body of members who were anxious to prolong debate for the mere purpose of preventing legislation. For example, it was understood until quite lately that any motion made in the House, even the most formal and technical, might be opposed, and if opposed, might be debated for any length of time without the Speaker having the power to intervene and cut short the most barren and meaningless discussion. When the House goes into committee, according to the formal parliamentary phrase, the temptation to obstruct becomes indefinitely multiplied, for in committee a member can speak as often as he thinks fit on the subject or at least such was his privilege before the alterations adopted in very recent years. It may be well to explain to the general reader the meaning of what takes place when the House goes into committee. When a bill has passed through its first and second reading, it is understood that the main principles of the measure have been agreed upon, and that it only remains for the House to go into committee for the purpose of considering every clause 
and every minute detail of the bill before it comes up to the house again for its third and final reading now the house when it goes into committee is still just the same house of commons as before except that the speaker leaves the chair and the assembly is presided over by the chairman of committees who sits not in the speaker's throne-like chair but in an ordinary seat at the table in front of it there is however the important difference that while in the house itself presided over by the speaker a member can only speak once on each motion in the committee he can speak as often as he thinks fit and for the obvious reason that where mere details are under consideration it was not thought expedient to limit the number of practical suggestions which any member might desire to offer as the discussion of each clause suggested new possibilities of improvement by the alterations effected recently in the rules of procedure the speaker of the house or the chairman of committees obtains a certain control over members who are evidently talking against time and for the sake of willful obstruction but in the days of lord john russell's reform bill no such authority had been given to the presiding officer the very motion in ordinary times a purely formal motion which had to be passed in order that the house might get into committee gave to the opponents of reform their first opportunity of obstruction the motion was that the speaker do now leave the chair and the moment that motion was put it was immediately met by an amendment a tory member raised the question that there was a mistake in one of the returns of population in the constituency which he represented and he proposed that his constituent should be allowed to show cause in person or by counsel at the bar of the house for a rectification of the error lord john russell admitted that there appeared to have been some mistake in the return but he contended that the motion to enable the house to go into committee was not the proper time at which such a question could be raised every one in the house knew perfectly well the motive for raising the question just then and after some time had been wasted in absolutely unnecessary discussion the obstructive amendment was defeated by a majority of ninety-seven that however did not help matters very much for the house had still to divide upon the question that the speaker do now leave the chair this was met by repeated motions for adjournment and on every one of these motions a long discussion was kept up by some leading members of the opposition and by their faithful followers the reader will remember that until the motion had been carried for the speaker to leave the chair it was still the house and not the committee that was sitting and therefore no member could speak more than once on the same subject but then this fact did not secure even that particular stage of the debate against obstruction for there were several different forms in which the motion for adjournment might be made and on each of these several proposals a member was entitled to speak even though he had already spoken on each motion previously proposed to the same practical effect 
perhaps it may be as well to bring the condition of things more clearly and more practically within the understanding of the general reader seeing that the parliamentary obstruction which may be said to have begun with the reform bill became afterwards so important an instrument for good or for evil in our legislative system the motion then is made that mr speaker do now leave the chair whereupon mr brown tory member moves as an amendment that the house do now adjourn and mr brown sets forth in a lengthened speech his reasons for thinking that the house ought not to sit any longer that night some member of the ministry rises and gives his reason for urging that the speaker should be allowed to leave the chair at once and that the house go into committee in order to consider the details of the measure thereupon several of mr brown's friends arise and one after another expound at great length their reason for supporting mr brown the ministers by this time have made up their minds that the best course they can follow is to let mr brown's friends have all the talk to themselves but some independent members on the side of the government are sure to be provoked into making speeches denouncing the obstructives and thereby only helping to obstruct at length when all mr brown's friends have had their say and mr brown it will be remembered cannot speak again on this particular question a division is taken on his amendment and the amendment is lost then the question is put once more for the speaker to leave the chair and instantly mr jones another tory member springs to his feet and moves as an amendment not that the house do now adjourn but that this debate be now adjourned which as every one must see is quite a different proposition on this new amendment mr brown is quite entitled to speak and he does speak accordingly and so do all his friends and at last a division is taken in the amendment of mr jones has the same fate as the amendment of mr brown and is defeated by a large majority up comes the question once more about the speaker leaving the chair and up gets mr robinson another tory member and moves that the house do now adjourn which motion is strictly in order for it is quite clear that the house might with perfect consistency refuse to adjourn at midnight and yet might be quite willing to adjourn at four o'clock in the morning on the amendment of mr robinson his friends brown and jones are of course entitled to speak and so are all their colleagues in the previous discussions and when this amendment too is defeated then mr smith yet another tory member rises in his place as the familiar parliamentary phrase goes and moves that this debate be now adjourned this is really a fair summary of the events which took place in the house of commons on this first grand opportunity of obstruction the motion to enable the house to get into committee on the details of the reform bill it was half past seven in the morning when the outwearied house consented to adjourn and the story was told at the time that when sir charles wetherell was leaving westminster hall with some of his tory colleagues he observed that a heavy rain was pouring down and he declared with a vigorous oath that if he had known of that in time 
he would have treated the government to a few more divisions before giving them a chance of getting to their homes. The bill, indeed, did get into committee at last, and then the work of obstruction began again and was carried on after the most systematic fashion. In committee, the opportunities were ample, for the case of each constituency which it was proposed to disenfranchise, or each constituency, the number of whose members it was proposed to lessen, had to be discussed separately, and of course gave rise to an unlimited number of speeches. A committee was actually formed to prepare, organize, and apply the methods of obstruction, and of this committee no less a person than Sir Robert Peel, then one of England's most rising statesmen, afterwards to be one of her greatest statesmen, was the president. Sir Robert Peel was himself one of the most frequent speakers in the obstructive debates, and among his rivals were Sir Charles Wetherill and Sir John Wilson Croker, a man who has been consigned to a sort of immortality by a famous essay of Macaulay's and by Disraeli's satirical picture of him as Mr. Rigby in Coningsby. The committee of Tory members, which has been already mentioned, arranged carefully in advance the obstruction that was to be carried on in the case of each particular constituency, and planned out in advance how each discussion was to be conducted and who were to take the leading parts in it. Meanwhile, popular feeling was rising more and more strongly as each day of debate dragged on. Some of the largest constituencies were most active and energetic in their appeals to the government to hold out to the very last and not yield an inch to the obstructionists. A fear began to spread abroad that Lord Grey and his colleagues might endeavor to save some of the main provisions of their bill by surrendering other parts of it to the opposition. This alarm found expression in the cry which soon began to be heard all over the country and became, in fact, the battle cry of reformers everywhere, the bill, the whole bill, and nothing but the bill. Great public meetings were held in all parts for the purpose of urging the government to make no concessions to the political enemy. During the summer, a meeting of the most influential supporters of the government was held in the Foreign Office, and at this meeting Lord Altrip, Chancellor of the Exchequer, announced that Lord Grey and his colleagues were perfectly determined not to give way, and he declared that the government was resolved to keep the House of Commons sitting until December, or if necessary, until the following December, in order to pass the bill before the rising of the House for its recess. Naturally, this firm declaration had some effect on the obstructionists, especially on the rank and file of the obstructionists. Nothing discourages and disheartens obstruction so much in the House of Commons as a resolute announcement on the part of the Ministry that the House is to be kept together until the measure under debate, whatever it may be, is disposed of. It is a hard task at any time to keep the House of Commons together after the regular season for its holiday has come on, and if the rank and file of obstruction can once be brought to believe 
that a certain measure is to be passed, no matter what number of weeks or months it may occupy, the rank and file is very apt to make up its mind that there is no use in throwing good months after bad, and that it might be as well to get the thing done, since it has to be done, without unlimited sacrifice of personal comfort. Still, the leaders of the Tory opposition were not deterred by Lord Altrip's proclamation from maintaining their work of obstruction for some time yet. The impatience and anger of the country rose higher and higher. A reforming member of the House was in an unlucky plight indeed if he happened to be caught by one of the amendments proposed from the benches of opposition and believing that it had something reasonable in it allowed his too sensitive conscience to persuade him into supporting it by his vote into such a plight fell a worthy alderman of the city of london who had been sent into the house of commons as a radical reformer this well-meaning person had permitted himself to become satisfied that there was something to be said for one of the opposition amendments and in a moment of rash ingenuousness he voted for it. He was immediately afterwards formally censured by his constituents and by the body to which he officially belonged. He was informed by solemn resolutions that he had been sent into the House of Commons to help the government in passing the Reform Bill, and it was more or less plainly intimated to him that he had no more right to the exercise of his independent opinion on any of the details of the measure than a private soldier on a battlefield would have to exercise his individual judgment as to the propriety of obeying or disobeying the order of his commanding officer. The poor man had to make the most fervid assurances that he had meant no harm in voting for the opposition amendment that he was thoroughly devoted to the cause of reform and to the particular measure then before the House of Commons, and that never again was he to be induced by any arguments to give a vote against the government on any section or sentence or line of Lord John Russell's bill. Then and not until then he was taken back into favor. The bill, however, did get through the committee at last, the government contrived by determined resistance and untiring patience to get their scheme of reform out of committee in substantially the condition they wished it to have. Then came the third reading. It was confidently assumed on both sides of the House that there would be a long debate on the motion that the bill be now read a third time. In the House of Commons, however, it often happens that the assumption of a forthcoming debate as a certainty is itself the one cause which prevents the debates from being long. So what happened on this important occasion? Every Tory took it for granted that his brother Tories would keep the debate going for an indefinite time, and in this fond faith a good many Tories felt themselves in no hurry to get to the House, and were willing to leave the first hour or two at the disposal of their colleagues. When the sitting began, and indeed when the motion for the third reading came on, there were comparatively few Tories in the House, and the great leaders of the opposition were not present. There was confusion in the ranks of the Tories and the crowded benches of the Reformers 
thundered with clamorous shouts of divide, divide. Now it takes a very heroic orator indeed to continue declaiming for a long time when a great majority of the members present are bellowing at him and are drowning by the united voices the sounds of the words which he is trying to articulate. The members of opposition in the House found this fact brought home to them, and being further bewildered by the fortuitous absence of their leaders, soon gave up the struggle, and the debate collapsed, and the third reading was carried by a large majority before Sir Robert Peel, Sir Charles Wetherell, and others came in leisurely fashion into the House, filled with the assumption that there would be ample opportunity for them to carry on the debate. Even yet, however, all was not over. According to the procedure of the House, it was not enough that the motion for the third reading of the bill should be carried. It was still necessary to propose the motion that the bill do now pass. The moment this motion was proposed, the torrent of opposition, frozen up for a too short interval, began to flow again in full volume. The nature of the formal motion gave opportunity for renewed attacks on the whole purpose of the bill, and all the old familiar outworn arguments were repeated by orator after orator from the Tory benches. But this too had to come to an end. The House was no longer in committee, and each member could only speak once on this final motion. Of course, there could be motions for adjournment, and on each such motion put as an amendment there would be opportunity for a fresh debate. But the leaders of the opposition were beginning to see that there was nothing of much account to be done any longer in the House of Commons, and that their hopes of resisting the progress of reform must turn to the House of Lords. So the Reform Bill passed at last through the House of Commons, and then all over the country was raised the cry, What will the Lords do with it? Soon the temper of the more advanced reformers throughout the country began to change its tone, and the question eagerly put was not so often, What will the Lords do with the bill? but What shall we do with the House of Lords? At every great popular meeting held throughout the constituencies, an outcry was raised against the House of Lords as a part of the constitutional system, and no speaker was more welcome on a public platform than the orator who called for the abolition of the hereditary principle in the formation of legislators. One might have thought that the agitation which broke out all over the country, and the manner in which almost all reformers seemed to have taken it for granted, that the hereditary chamber must be the enemy of reform, might have put the peers on their guard, and taught them the unwisdom of accepting the imputation against them, in thus proving that they had no sympathy with the cause of the people. But the great majority of the Tory peers of that day had not yet risen to the idea that there could be any wisdom in any demand made by men who had no university education, who had not what was then described as a stake in the country. The voice of the people was simply regarded as the voice of the rabble, and the Tory peers had no notion of allowing themselves to be guided by any appeal coming from such a quarter. 
The agitation of which we are speaking had been going on during the long reign of obstruction in the commons, and there was no time lost by the government between the passing of the bill in the representative chamber and its introduction in the House of Lords. On the evening of the day when the bill was passed by the commons, September 23, 1831, it was formally brought into the House of Lords and read a first time. It has already been explained that according to parliamentary usage, the first reading of any bill is taken in the House of Lords as a matter of right and without a division. The second reading of the bill was taken on October 3rd. Lord Grey, who had charge of the measure in that House, delivered one of the most impressive and commanding speeches which had ever come from his eloquent lips, not merely in recommendation of the measure itself, but in solemn warning to the peers in general and to the bishops and archbishops in particular, to pause and consider carefully all the possible consequences before committing themselves to the rejection of a demand which was made by the vast majority of the English people. Lord Grey was a noble illustration of what may be described as the stately order of parliamentary eloquence. He had not the fire and the passion of Fox. He had not the thrilling genius of Pitt, and, of course, his style of speech had none of the passionate and sometimes the extravagant declamation of which Brougham was a leading master. He had a dignified presence, a calm, clear, and penetrating voice, a style that was always exquisitely finished and nobly adapted to its purpose. It would not be too much to say for Earl Grey that he might have been the ideal orator for an ideal House of Lords, if we assume the ideal House of Lords to be an assembly in which appeal was always made to high principle, to reason, and to justice, not to passion, to prejudice, or to party. Lord Grey, so far as we can judge from contemporary accounts, never spoke better than in the debate on the second reading of the Reform Bill, and it was evident that he spoke with all the sincere emotion of one whose mind and heart alike were filled with the cause for which he pleaded. But the House of Lords just then was not in a mood to be swayed greatly by argument or by eloquence. Lord Warncliffe moved an amendment to the effect that the bill be read a second time this day six months. This, at least, was the shape that the motion took after some discussion, because Lord Warncliffe, in the first instance, had concluded his speech against the second reading by the blunt motion that the bill be rejected, and it was only when it had been pressed upon his attention that such a method of disposing of the measure would be a downright insult to the commons that he consented to modify his proposal into the formal and familiar amendment that the bill be read a second time this day six months. The effect would be just the same in either case, for no ministry would think of retaining office if the discussion of its most important measure were postponed in the House of Lords for a period of six months. During the debate which followed, the Duke of Wellington spoke strongly against the bill. On the morning of October 8th, the division was taken. There were 199 votes for the amendment 
and 158 votes against it, or in other words, for the second reading of the bill. The second reading was therefore rejected by a majority of 41. The whole work of legislation during all the previous part of the year had thus been reduced to nothing, and the House of Lords had shown what it would do with the bill by contemptuously rejecting it, and thus bidding defiance to the demand unquestionably made by the vast majority of the people of England, Scotland, and Ireland. Parliament was at once prorogued, and the members who were in favor of reform hurried off to address great meetings of their constituents and to denounce the action of the House of Lords. Popular enthusiasm was aroused more than ever in favor of the reform bill, and popular passion was stirred in many places to positive fury against the principal opponents of the bill. In London, several public men who were conspicuous for their opposition to the bill were surrounded in their carriages as they drove through the streets by suddenly collected crowds who hooted and hissed them and would have done much further than hooting and hissing in their way of expressing condemnation but for the energetic intervention of the newly created police force in some of the provincial towns and here and there throughout the country the most serious riots broke out in derby there were disturbances which lasted for several days and consisted of attacks on unpopular persons and of fierce fights with the police nottingham was the centre of rioting even more serious nottingham castle the seat of the duke of newcastle was attacked by a furious mob and actually burned to the ground in the immediate neighbourhood was the estate of mr musters which was invaded by an excited mob the dwelling-house was set on fire and although the conflagration was not allowed to spread far yet it ended in a tragedy which must always have a peculiar interest for the lovers of poetry and romance the wife of mr musters was the mary chayworth made famous by lord byron in his poem of the dream and other poems as well the mary chayworth who was his first love and whom at one time he believed destined to be his last love also mary chayworth does not seem to have taken the poet's admiration very seriously at all events she married mr musters a country gentleman of good position mrs musters was in her house on the night when it was attacked by the mob and when the fire broke out she fled into the open park and sought shelter there among the trees the mob was dispersed and mrs musters after a while was able to return to her home but she was in somewhat delicate health the exposure to the cold night air of winter proved too much for her and she became one of the most innocent victims to the popular passion aroused by the opposition to the reform bill bristol was the scene of the most formidable riots during all that period of disturbance sir charles wetherell who had made himself conspicuous as an opponent of reform was the recorder as well as the representative of bristol and his return to the city after the lords had thrown out the bill became the signal for an outbreak of popular fury houses were wrecked in various parts of the city street fights took place between the mob and the military 
Day after day the mansion house where Sir Charles Wetherell was supposed to have taken refuge was besieged, attacked, and almost demolished, and Sir Charles Wetherell himself was rescued more than once, with the utmost difficulty, from hostile crowds who seemed thirsting for his blood. All these riots were atoned for dearly soon after by some who had taken part in them. The stroke of the law was heavy and sharp in those days, and many of the rioters in Derby, Nottingham, and Bristol, and other places expiated on the scaffold their offenses against peace and order. Some of the cathedral cities became scenes of especial disturbance because of the part so many of the prelates who were members of the House of Lords had taken against a reform bill. The direct appeal which Earl Grey had made to the archbishops and bishops in the House of Lords to think long and well before opposing the reform bill was delivered with the highest and sincerest motive, with the desire that the church should keep itself in harmony with the people, but that the mere fact that the appeal was made and made in vain seems to have aroused in many parts of the country, and especially in the cathedral cities, a stronger conviction than ever that the prelates were for the most part the enemies of popular rights. Then again, there was a more or less general impression that the king himself in his heart was not in favor of reform, and would be glad to get rid of it if he could. Daniel O'Connell, addressing a great popular meeting at Charing Cross in London, pointed with his outstretched right arm towards Whitehall, and awakened a tremendous outburst of applause from the vast crowd by telling them that it was there Charles I had lost his head because he had submitted to the dictation of his foreign wife. There was a popular belief at the time that Queen Adelaide, the wife of King William, cherished a strong hatred against reform, such as Lord Grey and his colleagues were pressing on, and that she was secretly influencing the mind of her husband her own way, and so it was that O'Connell's allusion got home to the feelings and the passions of the multitude who listened to his words. Never in the nineteenth century had England gone through such a period of internal storm. All over the continent, observers were beginning to ask themselves whether the monarchy in England was not on the verge of such a crisis as had just overtaken the monarchy in France. Lord Grey and his ministers still, however, held firmly to their purpose, and the king, much as he may have disliked the whole reform business, and gladly as he would have got rid of it, if it were to be got rid of by any possible means, had still wit enough to see that if he were to give his support to the House of Lords, something even more than the House of Lords might be in danger. Parliament was therefore called together again in December, and the royal speech from the throne commended to both houses the urgent necessity of passing into law as quickly as possible the ministerial measure of reform. Lord John Russell brought in his third reform bill for England and Wales, a bill that was in purpose and in substance much the same as the two measures that had preceded it, and this third reform bill passed by slow degrees through its several stages in the House of Commons, then again came up the portentous question, what will the lords do with it? 
there could not be the least doubt in the mind of anybody as to what the majority of the house of lords would be glad to do with the bill if they only felt that they could work their will upon it without danger to their own order there however the serious difficulty arose the more reasonable among the peers did not attempt to disguise from themselves that another rejection of the bill might lead to the most serious disturbances and even possibly to civil war and they were not prepared to indulge their hostility to reform at so reckless an expense the greater number of the tory peers however acted on the assumption familiar at all times among certain parties of politicians that the more loudly people demanded a reform the more resolutely the reform ought to be withheld from them in that if the people attempted to rise up the only proper policy was to put the people down by force the opinions and sentiments of the less headlong among the conservative peers had led to the formation of a party more or less loosely put together who were called at that time the waverers just as a political combination of an earlier day obtained the title of the trimmers the waverers were made up of the men who held that their best and most patriotic policy was to regard each portion of the bill brought before them on its own merits and not to resist out of hand any proposition which seemed harmless in itself simply because it formed part of the whole odious policy of reform king william is believed at one time to have set hopes on the efforts of the waverers and to have cherished a gladsome belief that they might get him out of his difficulties about the reform bill as indeed it will be seen that they did in the end although not quite in the way which he would have desired end of section thirteen